Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 11. We'll read there together in just a moment. <clears throat> Revelation, chapter 11. While you're opening, I wanted to mention that the next membership class is two weeks from today. If you want to join our church, you can do that through the class. Or if you'd just like to find out more about the church, you're welcome to come. Two weeks from today, the membership class. Sign up if you're planning to come. And Vacation Bible School, you may have heard, is starting tomorrow. And I want to encourage you to invite some guests to come. Little kids would come, I think, if you invited them, talked to the parents about them coming, and maybe they don't know about it yet, or they've just never known they could do it. And man, it'll be, what a great privilege it is for us to teach boys and girls about the things of God, about God's purpose and plan for them. And thank you to all of you who are helping with Vacation Bible School directly. Um, if you're teaching or working in any form or fashion in Bible school, we are thankful for you. We want to encourage you to take your vitamins and to get a good nap today and then to hit the ground running and make it a great week. And I want to pray for you if you're helping. Everyone in our church helps in some way, giving, etc. But by some of you who are helping directly, you're going to be here at Bible school this week. If that's you, we're going to pray for you. Would you just stand where you are if you're teaching or helping or working in Bible school in some form or fashion? Would you just stand up where you are? I know he recognized you earlier, but I want to pray for you. And I, want to, I think that's good for us to pray for our workers together. So maybe there's someone around you or near you. you just pray for them. Maybe you know them. Maybe you don't. And you just pray that God will be glorified through them, that God will use them, and that God will accomplish his purposes. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Bible school. Thank you. You love little boys and girls. They matter to you. And thank you for the opportunity we have to teach them about the things of God and to teach them your word. And I pray this will be a great week. And I pray you bless every one of these workers. Give them enthusiasm and encouragement and an excitement to teach your word. And I pray, Lord, you'll just use them in great ways for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. God bless you. We could probably clap for them. I mean, that's probably okay to do too. God bless you. And we're going to read in Revelation chapter 11. Would you open your Bibles and follow along? And I'm going to read 14 verses there. So can you follow that many verses? Let's read Revelation chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. We're going through this book of the Bible. It's a great book. And let's pick up the story now in verse, uh, <clears throat> chapter 11, verse 1. <clears throat> the Bible says, Then it was given a measuring reed, like a rod, with these words. Go and measure the temple of God and the altar, and count those who worship there. But exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it, because it is given to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1260 days, dressed in sackcloth. <clears throat> These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city, which figuratively is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And some of the peoples, tribes, language, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put into a tomb. Those who live on the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of 
life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the survivors were terrified and gave glory to God in heaven. And the second woe had, as the second woe has passed, take note, the third woe is coming soon. Well, I want to encourage you to uh, take some notes as we talk this morning about truth. Write these three things down. And I want to talk about truth with you for just a minute. I was reading recently the story of Jesus in the book of John when he went, stood before Pilate. And Jesus said something like, um, he was testifying to the truth. And Pilate said, what I think is kind of the, sort of the mantra of our generation. I mean, really, the spirit of our generation. Pilate said, what is, what is truth? He said, what is truth? Is there any such thing, he was saying, perhaps? I mean, can truth just whatever we think or feel or want it to be? But the Bible says something very different. The Bible says there is such a thing as truth. There are things that are right, things that are wrong. That truth is not based on our feelings. It's not based on what is popular. It's not based on what we like or don't like. It's not based on what the culture says or doesn't say at a particular time and period. But Jesus said, in fact, Jesus said, I am the truth. That's what Jesus said. I am the truth. That's what Jesus said. And Jesus said the truth will set you free. And so God, because he cares about us, wants us to know the truth. And so in this passage, we see something about what's going to happen in the future. and something about how the truth matters. And I want you to note three things. If, you're, if you write these down, you kind of follow along. The first thing I want you to note is the truth will be told. As we work our way through these verses, I want you to kind of start there. The truth will be told. And here's the, the idea behind it. God wants you to know the truth. He wants you to know the truth. That's why he gives his word. That's why... He, he uh, tells us the truth. He wants us to know what he says, what he wants, what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad. God wants us to know the truth. And let's go back to the text and notice what the Bible says in verse 1. John's speaking of this vision of the future, and he says, I was given a measuring rod, like a, a reed, like a rod, with these words, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count those who worship there. So that's kind of odd because he's talking here about the temple. Now you may know that the temple in Israel, if you've followed the Old Testament a little bit, perhaps you've known this story. There was a tabernacle that represented the very presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant there, the holy place, the Holy of Holies. And then later, the permanent structure called the temple, that it was destroyed and rebuilt, and, and it was right on what we call the Temple Mount. But you may also know, if you've been in Israel or just known the story, you may know that there's no temple on the Temple Mount. There's no temple on the Temple Mount. In fact, there is a mosque on the Temple Mount. And the Bible's talking here about the future, and it's talking about a temple. And so one day, the Bible's telling us, there will be a temple rebuilt. In fact, even now, there are uh, religious leaders in Jerusalem who are preparing for the rebuilding of the temple, and they're making uh, uh, elaborate plans. Maybe you see in the news every once in a while something about it, like the um, red heifers that they found because that's part of a particular purification rite and uh, things like that. There's a lot of plans for that for the future one day. And I want to talk to you a moment about the temple and this temple that's going to be and why that matters and how it relates to us. Note three things about the temple and why it existed. 
One is it represented the presence of God. That is, if you were to say, where is God to the people in the days of the Old Testament? They would say, they would point to the tabernacle and say, God is, that's, God is there. Or they might say in the temple, God is there. Today even, um, people will go to the western wall, what we call the wailing wall sometimes, the place nearest to where the temple was in order to pray. And they would say that's the presence. It reminds us of the presence of God. The Lord himself said, I dwell between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. He was reminding people of his presence. And then the temple talked about the sacrifices for sin. The high priest on the Day of Atonement, just that one day a year, would go into the Holy of Holies and he would make a sacrifice on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. It was called the mercy seat. And it would sprinkle the blood of the lamb as a reminder of the penalty of sin. And people's sins were atoned for. And there were other sacrifices made all the time, daily, at the temple as a reminder of the consequences of sin. And so it's a part of sacrifice. And then it was a part of the law. And the law and the Old Testament was uh, all the rules that God had, and there were a lot of them, and all the responsibilities and what you were to do and not to do. So what about the temple? It's going to be rebuilt, but what about the temple? What about the temple first? Do you, do you know there is a temple now? In a, in a sense, there's a temple. Do you, do you know where the presence of God is now? The Bible says for a believer, it's in, it's in us. So that our body's called the temple of God. Not because our body's perfect. It's imperfect. And if you live long enough, you'll discover it's imperfect. You'll discover that. And it deteriorates. And that's just the way, it, that's the way of uh, living in this fallen, broken world. And it's not because the body's perfect, but because the presence of God, God the Holy Spirit, lives in us when we trust Christ as Savior. So if you give your life to Christ, it's not that God is out there, but God comes to live in you. God the Holy Spirit in you. Not far away, but present. And so there's a reminder of the presence of God. And then what about sacrifice? Because we don't, we're not sacrificing as they did in the Old Testament. Why is that? You may remember that Jesus is described here in the book of Revelation several times as the Lamb of God, even as the Lamb who was slain. And Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. So in the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement came every single year. The priest would go into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest, only on that one day a year, sprinkle the blood on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, as a reminder of the penalty of sin and atoning for the sin for the people. But every single year he had to come back. Well, why? What about us? Jesus is our lamb sacrificed. He is our, the, the one who atones for our sin. On the cross, Jesus died for us. And we don't have to repeat that. In fact, Jesus is the only perfect sacrifice. So that by the blood of Jesus, you can be forgiven of every sin. Of every sin. By the way, not by your goodness. You're not forgiven of your past by your good deeds now. Not by your hard work or not by your religious acts. But by the blood of Jesus, you can be forgiven. In fact, the blood of Jesus is sufficient to forgive you of every single sin. Did you know that? Sufficient to forgive you of sin. Sometimes... The enemy will whisper to you. Sometimes maybe you feel guilt and shame. And one reason you feel guilt and shame is when we're guilty and do wrong, the Holy Spirit convicts us of guilt. But even after you trust Christ as Savior, maybe, you've, maybe the enemy has whispered to you because he loves to do this. And he's, he says, you don't, think, you, don't, you don't think God's forgiven you. Don't you remember? And he'll point out every sin of your past and say God could never use you or God could never work through you or God could never love you or God could never forgive you. But the blood of Jesus 
is sufficient to forgive you of every sin. It's not that we don't take sin seriously or that we ignore it or that we're unaware of it, but that we recognize that those sin is terrible. And the more you understand about the Bible and the more you understand about sin, the more wicked you see sin is, the more terrible it is. But then you see the grace of God is greater. And the more you get to know of the grace of God, the more you recognize the greatness of that, that God is able to forgive and that the blood of Jesus, the only one who lived the perfect life, is sufficient to forgive. And then remember, we talked about the temple reminded us of the law and the responsibilities and we're reminded of God's grace. And though we are guilty under the law, if there's one thing the Old Testament does, it's to remind us that we cannot keep the law. That is, none of us are perfect. That we all fall short of the glory of God. But God gives us his grace. And he loves us. And he does for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so the temple matters. And one day there will be a temple rebuilt as a part, as a part of the um, end of time. And there are also witnesses here. Notice there are witnesses here. Two witnesses, in fact, to be particular. The Bible says uh, in verse 3, I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1260 days dressed in sackcloth. That is, these two witnesses given authority by the Lord. They're going to prophesy for three and a half years there in Jerusalem. So let's ask a couple of questions. First, who are they? So who are these two witnesses? And may I say there's much, there are many theories and much speculation about who these witnesses may be. Some people have thought maybe they're uh, Elijah and Moses representing the law and the prophets, or maybe uh, Enoch and uh, Elijah who did not face death in this world, or on and on and lots. In fact, I've had my own theories about who it is. I'm not sure about the first one, but the second one I've always thought, that's, I think it's our associate pastor Skip Leininger. I think that's the second witness. That's just been my theory. I could be wrong on this, of course. That's just been my theory I've worked with. So whatever, you can speculate all you want, but we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, right? It doesn't tell us. And so there are a lot of things in life you might speculate on, but just reckon, recognize it's speculation. There's not a clear answer. God could have told us who it was, but he didn't. And so whoever they are, they are people who are going to serve the Lord, and God uses people uh, to accomplish his purposes all the time. Well, what are they like? What are they like? Well, they're like, the Bible says uh, in verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. That is, they're like olive trees. Olives were, are of great value in the Middle East. They grow easily in that rocky, deserty soil, and they're used for sustenance. So one of the things, among others, that they're used for is sustenance. And so it, when you get hungry, you want to eat. When I get hungry, I don't know if you're this way or not, but when I get hungry, I want to, I want to eat. And sometimes... I want to eat when I'm not even hungry. That's just me, but maybe you do that some too. And we have this, in our body, there's this desire, this recognition, recognition that we need sustenance. And when it comes to God's Word, we need sustenance. We need to feed on the Word of God. We ought not be surprised that when we seldom feed on the Word of God, we're scrawny little spiritual weaklings. We ought not be surprised. Because if we want to grow stronger, then we're going to have to know what God says. We're going to have to learn what God teaches. We're going to have to know God's Word. And isn't it great that you can do that on your own? Like, you don't just have to wait for someone to feed you. You can read God's Word on your own and study it for yourself and find out more of what God says. Some of you are reading the New Testament for the very first time or reading it now for many times and reading through the whole Bible. I love to see that. And we want you to 
take responsibility for your spiritual growth and to gain some spiritual muscles and strength and to learn what the truth is. God wants you to know the truth, and one way he does that is to teach us his word. And so the Bible says these two witnesses are like olive trees that feed us and teach us and God uses people. God could do it all without anyone else, but God uses people in our lives to help us to hear his word, our life group teachers and pastors and, and parents who teach us the word of God. What a privilege it is for us to get to learn. And then they're described as lampstands. Now, lampstands are used, usually olive oil was used to light these lampstands, but they gave light. And in this dark world, how do, how do we know right from wrong? How do we know what's good or bad? How do we know how we ought to live? Is it just like feelings? Is that it? Just feelings? I, I feel this way? Or is there something that's more lasting? Is it just popular opinion? Does God sort of lick his finger and hold it up to the wind to see which way it's blowing and decide, well, most people think this, so is that it? Well, no. We, we, God shines the light of truth in this dark world. And I don't have to tell you, this is a pretty dark world. Our culture is pretty dark. Many people never give us thought to what does God say or think. And so they base what they do on their feelings or what's popular or what's acceptable. And they miss uh, God's light. And God uses his word to open our eyes, to give us discernment, to teach us right from wrong, to help us know what we ought to do and what we ought to avoid. God does this because he cares about us. So we've seen a little of who they are and and what they're like, but what do they do? Well, the Bible says here they prophesy. They have some miraculous things that, al- that allow that to continue. They can, um, anyone who tries to harm them can be killed. They have miraculous signs that point out the truthfulness of what they're doing. These, the uh, lack of rain and turning water to blood and plagues. They prophesy. They're teaching the truth. And they're proclaiming the truth. And God uses people to proclaim the truth. God will use you. By the way, maybe God has you in your job or in your school or in your neighborhood or in your family because he wants you to be a means by which other people hear the truth. He wants to use you, your lips and your witness as a means by which other people hear what God wants and how he wants them to live. God would use you just as certainly as God would use these two witnesses. God would use you. And God uses imperfect people like us all the time to accomplish his purposes. He could do it all without us, but he chooses to use people like us to accomplish his purposes. And so God, the Bible tells us the truth will be told. And God's using all of these means, people in our lives, his word, as a means of feeding us and putting shining light in our dark world and helping us to hear the truth and know the truth because God wants you, God wants you to know his word. God wants you to know the truth. And you live in a time when you can own the Bible for yourself and hear what, read what God has to say and hear God's word proclaimed in a life group, in a worship service. What a privilege this is. There's a second thing I want you to note about this passage, and that is the truth will be resisted. Now, I said the truth will be told, and God does proclaim the truth, but the truth will be resisted. And not everybody was very happy with these two witnesses and it's not uh, surprising because that's been a part of the history of mankind. So let's note what the Bible says in verse 7. When they finished their testimony, that is when they've, they've been proclaiming for this three and a half years, the beast that comes up out of the abyss, 
It's a pretty graphic description, isn't it? The beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. And the Bible tells, says their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city. So the beast, uh, we'll see more descriptions as we go through the book of Revelation of the Antichrist. And he's described as a beast. There's a couple of descriptions of beasts along the way here. This Antichrist, either the Antichrist or one of the, uh, or certainly the spirit of the Antichrist, is not going to tolerate the truth. I mean, only for so long will he tolerate the truth. In fact, just the opposite. He will celebrate the wrong. The Bible says they, uh, people on the earth uh, would gloat over the death of these witnesses. They will celebrate and send gifts to one another, verse 10 says. So the enemy will not tolerate the truth, and he will, in fact, celebrate the wrong. It's much like our own generation. The, the truth is not well tolerated. And we can tolerate anything except God's Word. And in our generation, we can celebrate things that are wrong. Notice what the Bible says here about three different regions or cities that are mentioned. Um, the Bible tells us in verse 8, their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city, which figuratively is called Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. So it's three different regions or cities mentioned. The first is Sodom. Sodom, if you know the story of the Old Testament, was... Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by, the God, by God's judgment because of the sin of their land. There are so few, not even ten, who remained that were righteous. And God eventually brought judgment. God, God is a God who loves. God is a God who is holy. God judges sin. The Bible tells us that clearly. And judgment came eventually. Even though God offered grace and the opportunity, eventually Sodom was judged because of the sexual immorality. In fact, the Bible says something, and I don't know that you would hear this anywhere else in all the world except from someone who is a believer or some, uh, from, our, from our church or some case like that. Here's, some, here's what the Bible says about sexual immorality. The Bible says, flee sexual immorality. That's what the Bible says. Flee, run from sexual immorality. Not flirt with it, flaunt it, but flee from sexual immorality. And did you know God does that because he loves you? You might think, God's, man, God says that because he wants to make my life worse and harder and bad and keep me from fun or he does it because he loves you because he wants what's best for you because because he knows the damage that comes to you to the temple of the lord god to the to the life of the person who runs from god's way god's best and god's purpose and plan and so sodom reminds us that god judges sin and we can't take that out of the Bible without taking out large sections of the Bible. God tells us the truth about this because he wants us. He loves us enough to tell us the truth. And then the Bible uses the description of Egypt. Now, Egypt is the place of slavery. You may remember the Old Testament story. Israel went to Egypt as invited guests. And then they stayed as slaves. And the enemy's a marketer. And he says, sin is going to be great. And you're going to have the best time. And it's going to be wonderful. Come on down to Egypt. You be my invited guest. And then he puts you in bondage. Because that's what sin does. It puts you in bondage. The goal of the enemy is not to make your life better. But it is to put you in slavery. And so Egypt was a reminder to Israel to us, that 
slavery is the result of sin. And that God, has, God is the one who gives freedom. We can be free in Christ. The truth sets us free. But Egypt was the reminder of slavery. And then the third place was Jerusalem. In fact, the Bible says, um, verse 8 says, this is, they were lying in the main street of the great city, which figuratively is called Sodom in Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. Well, the Lord was not crucified in Sodom or in Egypt. He was crucified in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, that reminds us of religion. Well, listen, religion isn't just bad in and of itself, of course. I am, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a super religious sort of guy. I went to church to worship service today twice. I went both times. I'm into both services. I'm pretty religious. I do things that you might call religious acts. But I want you, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's to be commended. God is the one who calls us to do things we call religious, to attend church, we're to worship together. God's the one who calls us to service and giving and other things that we think of as religious acts. But understand the danger is that religion can be the replacement for what God wants. That is, we replace what God wants with just, I go to church on Sunday or I do some various religious activities. Here's what God wants, not just the outside of you. You can, religion can be just the outside of you. God wants you. You. Not just Sunday, you, but you. Not just the outside shell of you. He wants you. All of you, your heart, your spirit, your soul, he wants you. Now, when he has you, of course, he has what you might call religious acts. You'll, you'll find a joy in church. You'll find a eagerness in worship. Giving and service will be something that you're drawn to. But God, of course, wants you, not just the outside of you, but all of you. And so the Bible is saying here, these three cities remind us of the resistance that comes to the truth through Sodom or through Egypt or even through Jerusalem. And God has a better plan and purpose. Truth's always been resisted. We see it in the Bible over and over. We've seen it in history. Long years ago, I read a book, as best I could read it. It's from the 1500s called Fox's Book of Martyrs. I mean, that's the popular title for it now by a guy named Fox. And he told about all the people who had been killed in various ways in his time and before. And then the voice of the martyrs has updated that. And there's a book called Jesus Freaks I read some years ago that updates it more. And throughout history, we've seen people who have lived for the Lord told the truth, and because of that, have faced great resistance, often to the point of death, even giving their life. People who said, there are some things so important that matter so much that they're more important than my life. Who said something like this, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that sounds odd to us. I'll tell you, sometimes for me, I just want to hang on to things and I want to focus on the on comfort and ease, and God is reminding us, things are bigger, isn't that amazing, than you, bigger than you, bigger than your comfort, bigger than your things, bigger than your ease, bigger than the possessions, and God cares about, God reminds us there are things that matter so much. I am so thankful for people who sacrifice, who give instead of just receiving, who care so deeply about the gospel, they're willing to do hard things in hard places at hard times. We ought not be surprised that the truth is resisted. It has been throughout history. It has been throughout the pages of the Bible. And the Bible tells us in the future it will be as well. The truth will be told. The truth will be resisted. There's a third thing I want you to note. Would you write this down? The truth will prevail. Don't miss this one. The truth will prevail. 
So the Bible says in verse 11, after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, these two witnesses. Three and a half days. No one buried them. They just mocked them. They were lying on the ground. And the Bible says the breath of life entered of God, a life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. I'll bet it did. I'll bet it did. Can you imagine? They've been, it's not as though they just heard about their death. They're lying out in the open, and then the breath of life from God comes, and they stand. Great fear came, and a loud voice from heaven said, come up here, and they joined the Lord in the air. Great earthquake follows, and a tenth of the cities destroyed and thousands of people are killed and the bible says the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the god of heaven that is they saw something maybe a little bit like like saul must have thought about stephen the first martyr when stephen died for his faith they laid their coats at this man named saul we know him better as paul i wonder if god didn't use that in his life many times in the future as he thought about there was a guy who was willing to live for something and willing to die for something and a guy who thought of who saw the world in a larger way than i have seen it the truth will prevail. I, uh, if you're around here much, you'll, you'll discover I like sports and um, my, my teams win and my teams lose. And I like it better when they win, right? I like it better when they win than when they lose. It's been a hard year for my Cardinals this year. It's been a hard year for my Cardinals. But the Bible says that the truth will prevail. It doesn't seem like it prevails, does it? Seems like it's losing, doesn't it? In some ways. I mean, you see people who are, who are living for the Lord and face difficult things. And you see people who are just flaunting wickedness and, and seem to be doing just fine. It doesn't seem like it prevails. I want you to note a couple of things. First note that God offers eternal life. These, these men didn't, they died, but they didn't stay dead. Why would people be willing to die for their faith? Because they knew the promise of God for eternal life. God gives victory over sin and death and hell. God offers eternal life. Did you know that? An abundant life, a life worth living in this world, and an eternal life. And I want to ask you, I'm going to urge you to trust Christ as Savior in a moment when we pray. I'm going to ask you to give your life to Christ if you haven't done that yet. To repent of your sins and place your trust in Him and receive Him as your Savior. And God will give you eternal life. And He'll give you a life worth living in this world. In this world, he's got a purpose for you right here and now, and then eternal life one day, the truth will prevail. And secondly, note that God accomplishes his purposes. Wrong seems to win, but we have the end of the book. It seems like the wrong prevails, but we have the end of the book. We we see what appears to be the victory of the Antichrist, or the victory of the world, or the victory of wrong. And man, I am thankful that that's not the end of the story, but the promise of God is found in the end of the book. So here's what I do with sports sometimes. Sometimes I'll just tape the game. And, um, and then I'll find out if my team won or lost. And if they lost, I never look at it again. I just don't even bother to look at it. But if they won, I can watch. And sometimes when I'm watching my team will fall behind and it doesn't look very good for my team but I don't have to worry because I know the end of the tape and sometimes in this world man it just it doesn't it feel to you some of you say man it feels like the enemy is just winning all the time in my life like sin's got a grip on me and I just can't break this 
addiction, this problem, this difficulty. And it feels like everything that God wants, it just feels like it's ignored by our culture and we're going there as fast as we can away from God and ignoring the things of God. It feels like the world's going to win, but we, we could see the end of the book and the promises that God makes that we can have victory. God can give us victory even in, through the problems in this world and ultimately in heaven. And man, I am thankful for the end of this book and the promises God gives because the truth's going to be told and the truth's going to be resisted, but ultimately the truth will prevail. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, I want to ask you to give your life to Christ today. To repent of your sin, place your trust in Christ, and receive Him as Savior. And you could pray a prayer like this, not, not, just, not just saying words, but a prayer from your heart to God, something like this. God, I know I've sinned against you. Just acknowledge that to Him. God, I've sinned against you. You are holy, and I'm not. But I believe you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe you rose from the grave. And I place my trust in you, that you're bigger than my sin, that you love me, that you've done what was necessary for me to be forgiven, that you paid the price on the cross. And so right here and now, I turn from my sin and I give my life to you. I ask you to save me. Now listen, if you mean that, Christ can save you. Right where you are, Christ will save you. You can know him as Savior. I want you to grow in your faith and learn more of God's purpose and plan for you, but maybe God brought you to this place or allowed you to hear this message so that you would trust him as Savior. And Christian, I wonder if you wouldn't say, God, I, it doesn't always feel like I'm winning in my life, but you're bigger than my problems, my past, my failures, my brokenness, my needs. And God, it feels like the truth isn't always on the winning side, but I want to, you tell me the truth will prevail, and I see the end of the book, and I, God, I'm, I want to live with victory in mind, knowing that I can follow you and serve you, come what may, because of the promises you make, because I know the end of the story. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth. We thank you for the power of it. We thank you for the hope that it gives. We pray you'll draw people to yourself. I, I want to thank you for people, even this day, who, who have prayed to receive you as Savior, and I pray they'll grow in their faith. For Christians who have taken that next step to say, God, I'm going to live for you. I'm going to live in victory, knowing the promises that you give me, knowing the end of the story. I want to follow you and live for you. Help me to be faithful to you. Lord, thank you for doing that work in us and through us. Thank you for telling us the truth that sets us free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.